Welcome to Apodcalypse Now, a journey into the heart of darkness. My name is Dave, and this is my brother Aaron, and we're here to give you our totally 100% unqualified views on all things pop culture. From movies to music to news, nothing is off limits for us to blindly comment on that's happening in the real world. So once again, welcome to the inaugural edition of Apodcalypse Now, and we're just going to get right into it. And the first thing we're going to talk about is the film Predators came out about a week ago, and it's a sequel to the uh, John McTiernan Arnold Schwarzenegger classic from 1987. Had a $33 million opening weekend, so you know it didn't exactly set the box office on fire, even though I think there was some anticipation for this film. Well, overall, after seeing the movie last night, I'd probably give it a C-plus at best. Basically, what it was is a rehashing of a lot of the good ideas that worked in the first one. And the original ideas they added were kind of, uh, they didn't really hold up. There, some of them were kind of silly, like the predator dogs. The fact that the old school predators were no longer good enough, so they had to make bigger, tougher, stronger, meaner looking predators to make the uh, original predators seem like a gentle creature. I had a hard time believing Adrian Brody as a lead, especially when you compare him to that of the muscle-bound a phenom known as Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can imagine an Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting a predator, but a guy like Adrian Brody, who's known for his roles in, what is it, The Piano? King Kong. King Kong. <laughs> I mean, what happens if Arnold fights Adrian Brody? Well, the problem with that is that Adrian Brody might be able to play a piano better than Arnold, but unfortunately Arnold would smash him. So I, it's, it was hard to, to kind of view him in that lead role fighting a not just one, but three predators. So it, it was kind of difficult to swallow that you know i think you hit on something key with the whole movie is that it was kind of a rehashing they took the best ideas from the original and kind of just mashed it up with the new film you know and there's so many homages in that film you know there's the gatlin gun that jesse ventura carried around it's used by the russian character in this film you know the lead female character looks like almost exactly like the lead female character from the original predator it's you know it just seems like they took a bunch of ideas that worked really well in that film and the original film was so good it was you know john mctiernan this was right before he directed die hard with bruce willis and it was just a tense jungle action film and they did they just rehashed it and i'm wondering when you know when homage becomes pale imitation of the original and you gotta understand we're up to the fifth sequel in this franchise if you count the aliens versus predator films and this is really only tied i think in my opinion for second best with predator 2. while there were a lot of things that i may not have liked about the movie there were some things that were cool i I think the general idea of the predators taking humans and transporting them to another planet like a big game reserve for them to hunt is a really cool unique idea i think the idea of taking the predators and making them like human hunters and having you know them have similarities between the two was kind of a good idea but just the fact that it's taken five movies to come up with the second best in the series shows that there haven't been a lot of original ideas obviously the aliens versus predator movies were pretty weak i don't know anyone out there that really will say that those movies held up or in some ways probably won't even count those as part of the predator or aliens franchises in a lot of ways overall you might as well just watch the first one if you want to get a real feel for what's going on in the predator movies because it's pretty much just takes those ideas and runs with them on a different planet. This script has been around for almost 10 years. Originally, after the first film, Robert Rodriguez was commissioned to write a sequel, and it was called Predators, and it took place on the Predator homeworld. And the story was that they went back and got Dutch, who was going to be played by Arnold, took him back to the Predator's homeworld and hunted him on their planet. And I think Arnold, I think he decided to do Total Recall instead of the sequel to Predator. I mean, No, he did Terminator 2, excuse me. He did Terminator 2 instead of the sequel to Predator. And they went with Danny Glover. They went a different direction. And I really think, actually, you know, set in L.A., while not a perfect film, I think a lot of the elements in it work. Um, I know people kind of bag on Predator 2, but, you know, I don't think it's as bad as everybody makes it out to be. But I also think that the fact there have been four bad Predator movies and one good Predator movie speaks to the durability of this franchise and the fact that people, you know, 15, 20 years later are still fascinated by this character design that was done by Stan Winston, you know, who is a legend in Hollywood for his character design. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that another, obviously I touched on the Alien franchise a little bit ago, and it's kind of going through a similar period of time right now with, in the sense that basically there hasn't been a really completely from beginning to end solid Alien sequel since the second one. But in the same sense, you know, there's there's great character design though, and people keep coming back to it. Just hopefully at some point they'll be able to make something that's worth coming back to. I enjoyed the movie last night, but it's, it's a movie that I probably will only watch once in my whole life, unless I'm flipping through the channel someday on TV and it happens to pop up but overall you know it, it's a entertaining watch but not something you're going to keep going back for like uh, the original predator or uh, titanic so <laughs> <laughs> well this is definitely a three dollar theater movie this is not something you want to take anybody out on a date to it is not worth 10.50 to go see it at a full price theater hell no 
I mean, once again, it just rehashed ideas. And it is a movie you're going to see on a Saturday afternoon on FX. There's some silliness in the movie. Lawrence Fishburne is featured prominently in the trailer, and he really only shows up for about 15 minutes as a bipolar, chubby, air cav officer that was kidnapped 10 hunting seasons ago. They never really explain, like, why he was badass enough to escape the Predators. Lawrence has put on so much weight that I think he just ate the Predators that were hunting him. Yeah, that's my opinion, too. I think that what he did is have a Predator barbecue and quickly gain a little bit of weight. I mean, honestly, he's like a bear. He could just go into hibernation and survive the Predator reserve that way. Well, at one point he lays down to take a nap, and I'm pretty sure he just got done having a large predator burger. <laughs> and his character is really doesn't serve any purpose except to kind of explain things, just to kind of move the plot forward. I mean, they could have got any actor to play that part. They could have got Hurley from Lost, who would have really been the fat, like he would have been like Winnie the Pooh. He would have got stuck in the door of the ship they crawl into. Um, besides that, some of the other silliness in this film, the Predator generic Asian character sword fight. <laughs> the scene just, written by a fifth grader. Uh, that just like screams like Predator fan fiction. It's kind of like, and then the Predator jumps into the grassy scene and has a sword fight with the samurai. One last thing I'd like to bring up about the movie is the way they use a lot of the uh, score and sound effects and soundtrack from the original movie. In particular, during the credits, they use the song that the intro of the original kind of rolls into, and that was one thing I found to be kind of cool. Um, sometimes movies like Terminator Salvation, for instance, try to work those homages in, and it comes off kind of weak. But in this sense, when you hear the jungle, the tribal music in the score, and just some of the songs, it does bring you back to that original movie. So that was definitely a positive that I saw on it. Well, see, I kind of actually saw that as a negative because it's relying too heavily on the original film. You know, it's like, okay, you remember the first film? Here's the soundtrack. Remember how cool that was? Well, we were using that same soundtrack. Um, remember the uh, Long Tall Sally at the end? Well, here's that song again. You remember how cool that first helicopter scene was? Um, you know, and just to speak on the, the homage aspect again of Predators, you know, at one point, the main character, Adrian Brody, Royce, you know, he kills a scorpion with a knife. And that's a pretty iconic scene in the original Predator. Um, when they go tumbling down into the lagoon, that reminded me almost shot for shot of when Arnold went tumbling down to the lagoon in the South American jungle. At the end, Royce with his shirt off, all smeared up with mud, which was kind of laughable because, and not, you know, not to besmirch Adrian Brody's physique because he's in great shape, but to compare that to Arnold when you're a fan of the original film, it's just kind of laughable. And I just want to reiterate, you know, at what point does homage become pale imitation? You know, at what point do they stop or do they start pointing out, you know, remember how cool this stuff was? Well, we have it in our film too. No, that's true, and I see where you're coming from on that. For me, a lot of the movies in the past that have tried to do the same thing have come across weaker, and so for me, in comparison, I do think it was uh, a little bit cooler. I do think using the score is something they had to do. I think it was smart because the setting's so similar, especially, like I said, the jungle tribal beats. Um, yeah, the Adrian Brody scene at the end where he's dressed up in mud like Arnold did, that's kind of silly because the first thing you do compare it to as a real fan of the film is Arnold being smeared up in mud, and I'm sorry, the uh, the Terminator's a little more intimidating smeared up in mud fighting a Predator Beast than Adrian Brody. Then the guy from the piano. Then the guy from the piano, exactly. Yeah, um, and you know, that's something about the scores. I do get it because that is such an iconic score from the 80s and it is a very tense score. So, I mean, you could do much worse. And it kind of reminded me of some of the beats from Brian Singer's Superman film. They really reused a lot of John Williams' original score from the, the first Superman with Christopher Reeves. And it's like, why mess with perfection if you get it right the first time? But once again, it just felt too much like, do you remember this from the original film that you loved? Well, we've got it too. Totally. I think one of the, the fine line that you have to tread with that is I guess the problem is they wouldn't think of this as the people making the movie but the if you're going to incorporate a score and a soundtrack from a previous movie in a series that's already been successful you better damn well make sure that the new original creative ideas in the sequel hold up and that's going to make those ideas the homage ideas seem less silly because then it's going to seem like you're relying on it less and I think that's where the problem was is that the original ideas in this movie were pretty weak like the predator dogs were weak some like I said some ideas for the plot for me were okay but they weren't thought out enough so I think that would have helped it but yeah overall the marsh stuff did end up overall being weak but once again i think characterization of the people in adrian brody's group i don't remember any other names except for adrian brody because he introduces his name at the very end i think and i think what you're getting at is you know a good example of this is terminator 1 versus terminator 2 you know they use a very similar scores that metallic soundtrack and a lot of the ideas from terminator 2 are recycled from terminator 1 but james cameron because you know he's a great action film director was able to use those ideas and twist them into a new light and keep them tense and keep them kind of original and it didn't come off as an homage it came off as you know a natural natural sequel to the first one so I think you know and I think that's kind of what they were going for in Predators but it just didn't work and once again you know it seemed like too much of an imitation of the original film
So up next, we're going to be introducing our segment, which is called Man of the Year. And this week's recipient of the award is none other than our hero, Mad Max, Mel Gibson. As you know, Mel Gibson's been in a lot of trouble in the media lately because he's been basically being derogatory towards all sorts of different ethnic minorities, uh, Jews, uh, different colored people, and also his own wife, Baby's Mama. Baby's Mama. Um, You know, Mel Gibson is an Oscar-winning director who has had a long career in the movie industry and a lot of people are saying his career is over based on some of the things that have been going on recently and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him at least take a little hiatus for the time being as we all know in American popular culture I have a tendency to forgive and forget and I wouldn't be surprised to see him make a comeback but the uh, audio tapes that have come out may speak otherwise yeah I don't know if he's going to be able to come back from this one because didn't he just take a hiatus for about a year and a half or so after he divorced the mother of his 14 children I think you know fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, don't get fooled again, to quote our, our ex-president. But, uh, you know, Mel, he's got a lot of goodwill. He's one of the all-time box office champs. He's, he's Riggs. He's Riggs from Lethal Weapon. He's William Wallace. He's that guy from The Patriots. You know, and I, honestly, I'm going to be honest. I was rooting for Mel Gibson to come back, but the things he said and the things I hear about him and just everything, it's just kind of like, what, what fucking planet are you from, Mel? I know Australia is like a whole other continent, but... You gotta be a little more careful about things you say, buddy. Yeah, I just think that here's a prime example of a guy who's had a lot of success and whose ego has gotten out of control. I think that, uh, as you see with a lot of celebrities, I think when you have had a certain level of success in the industry, your mind kind of gets warped and you kind of lose touch with what how it is to be a regular person in the real world. And I think that the audio we're about to play kind of shows that, how he thinks of himself, how he thinks of his wife. Well, just how he views the world. It's like he's living on Planet Mel. Yeah, he is living on Planet Mel. Planet Egomania, or the only people who have condos there are Mel, Steven Seagal, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you think he dresses like uh, the Mad Max in Planet Mel? I think he... If, if, he, if, he could, if he could inhabit one character in Planet Mel, which one is it? Maybe it's the guy from Bird on a Wire with Goldie Hawn. <laughs> I don't know. I think he fancies himself more the William Wallace type. but He is a freedom fighter. That's true. When I look for freedom, when I think about freedom, I think about Mel Gibson verbally berating his wife. Tell me that the message or something, right? Because you're doing something. Trying to breastfeed with uh, foreign bodies in you. Was that it? It had nothing to do with it. Like drugs? Oh, it had nothing to do with what, the, the fact that you had foreign bodies in there? Correct. Correct, okay, good. So you're not lying to me about fake tits. I've never heard. Yes, yes, you just did. You said they weren't. You f***ing lied to me before. What? I didn't. So did Mel not know she had fake tits? Was he, could he not tell? It, I never said anything. She must have snuck time. it by him. You never asked me, I never told you. She sounds I mean, so innocent, though. Me, but I never lied about this. Not a lie, who cares? No, no, is it just me or should people not have to ask about fake tits? Anyway, uh, you know. That's not none of your f***ing. It is, it is. They look stupid. I'm just telling you. I how casually he just moves on. stupid. See if I give a You know, but they're too big and they look stupid. They look like some Vegas. look like a Vegas whore. And you go around sashaying around in your tight clothes and stuff. I won't stand for that anymore. I don't, I don't walk around. I don't walk. I don't walk around in tight clothes. I for most of the time. You public and it's embarrassment to me. You look like a on heat. You get raped by a pack of it'll be your fault. Alright? Because you provoked it. You are provocatively dressed all the time with your fake boobs. You feel you have to show off in tight outfits and tight pants and stuff. You see your pussy from behind. And that green thing today was enough. That's oh my provocative. It's like, what do you say? Okay? You know, it's... I'm telling you. I'm just telling you the truth. I think we can just separate I don't like it. Though. I don't want that woman. I don't want you. I don't believe you. I don't think he was complaining nine months ago before she got pregnant. I don't love you. I don't want you. Okay? Okay. Stay in the house. I'm not giving it to you, but I'll let you stay there. Okay? And I will take care of my child, but I don't want you anymore. Well, at least he's going to take care of his child. He, he clearly does not like her boobs. He doesn't want her sashaying around like a Vegas whore. He doesn't like camel toe. No, he's not a fan of camel toe. Mad Max is not a fan of the toe. Yeah, this gives a new meaning to the term Mad Max. But she gets the house. He's going to take care of his kid. 
I know some things have come up on the internet and people familiar with the situation are saying that this is not how the conversation played out and that it's edited to put her in a good light. And it does, it definitely seems that way because she's kind of stoic and kind of remaining very passive, but I do feel that there's more to the situation than what is heard in the clip. Yeah, the quote, forensic experts on the Mel Gibson side said that what you have is between his audio clips where you can hear him speaking, you can hear subtle fades in the audio. So, I mean, obviously, you can't really say anything to justify a man talking to a woman that way, but the context completely changes when what she is saying is taken out. And I think that's important to keep in mind. As a mega superstar, you have to be wary of what you say, though. On the other hand, it is illegal to record someone unknowingly unless there's a threat of violence. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes into play as well as the situation unfolds. Well, once again, Mel Gibson, a couple years ago, was maybe the biggest star on the planet, one of the highest box office earners, probably only second to Harrison Ford. And, you know, why would she make a recording of this quality? Because that is very clear audio. Like, she had planned it. She knew what she was going to do. So, I mean, would it really be out of the realm of possibility for her to make edits to it? And I'm not excusing what Mel Gibson said. That guy's got fucking screws loose. That guy needs some help. His people just actually came out and said that they're going to try to get him into rehab. Basically, the word on the street is that in the early 90s and 80s, he, he was an alcoholic. He was supposed to have gotten clean in the 90s, but apparently he has fallen off the wagon again and is apparently be going into alcohol treatment. Who knows how much of that is true and how much of that is a PR move but it's obvious that these recordings were made with the intention of being used against him so you know i mean who knows what the actual situation was uh, there's also come in the news that he hit her while she was holding the baby but that's been denied so i, I will see i'm never gonna be able to watch maverick ever again i'm just gonna say that right now i know of all the mel gibson movies that it has ruined for me it's the patriot how can I imagine someone, a Revolutionary War hero, abusing his wife in such a way? When in that movie, he's so passionate about having lost his wife. It's I mean, so sad. Yeah, I'm shocked. I mean, the guy that made Braveheart, the guy that made four Lethal Weapon movies in the Mad Max films, I would have never thought that he'd be violent or derogatory in this way. It's hard to believe the guy that played so many great, unhinged characters would do something like this in real life. Would actually be unhinged? His whole career has been method acting. <laughs> So now that we're done savaging Mel Gibson a bit, we're going to move on to uh, a bit that hopefully we're going to carry through for the next few weeks as the podcast gets rolling, and that is the weekly homework assignment. Every week, I'm going to give Aaron a homework assignment. He's going to give me a homework assignment, something that neither one of us are familiar with and that we really have no great understanding of. And this week, the homework assignment that Aaron gave me was to listen to the Gaslight Anthem's new album, which is... American Slang. So I procured the album, and I gave it a listen, and my thoughts are that, you know, it's a very it's a very poppy, very radio-friendly album. When I listen to it, I think about the Gaslight Anthem, and it's like Billy Joel made Love to Weezer, and that's what you get. It seems like a lot of anthems, a lot of Do You Remember the Time, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of nostalgia songs, and it seems like that's how they're kind of getting over on the radio. I, I don't know anything about music. I am a complete fucking layman when it comes to music. I don't think I would keep this album. I don't think I would listen to it more than just a few times that I was a sign to but it's not bad you know i can see why people be into it the gaslight anthem is a band that i found out about two years ago when one of my other favorite bands rise against was touring with them basically there was a tour package with rise against alkaline trio and thrice which are three bands i'm a big fan of and there's some unknown opening band called the gaslight anthem on it and so i figured might as well check them out if they're touring with three other bands that i enjoy i then proceeded to find a copy of their album that was soon to be out called the 59 sound and instantly fell in love with what they're doing for me the thing that makes the gaslight anthem so good is they do a good job of combining different elements of different periods of time of music and create something that sounds uh, a little different than what's going on right now you have elements of the clash in the instruments you have one of the big people that the singers compared to which is funny because they're from new jersey as well which is the boss bruce springsteen and there's a little bit indie rock in there too, which by itself isn't a genre I'm a huge fan of, but there's just enough of it to where it adds a unique texture to what they're doing. They are known for very nostalgic lyrics to what they're going for, but the, if you really pay attention to what he's singing about, the thing he does that's smarter than a lot of people is he's not just trying to cash in on it in a cheap way. What he sings about a lot is how youth is fleeting and how people in America and in American culture, we focus on it so much and people never get past that. You know, I agree with that too, actually, because listening to lyrics while they did kind of reek nostalgia it was different than say a Nickelback album or you know one of those other bands like that that are definitely trying to cash in on people's feelings be like do you remember when you know this 
It seemed like he did have something to say. I was only able to get the album about three times, so I couldn't really dig into the lyrics and really hear what he was saying. Bottom line for me is that I just don't think it was for me. You know, and I can definitely see the comparisons with Bruce Springsteen and both them being from New Jersey. And thank God he chose Bruce Springsteen and not John Bon Jovi, who just injured himself on stage last week. So, you know, get well, John. <laughs> yes, get, get well, John. They're just one of those up-and-coming bands. They Their last album really blew them up, so there's a, a big build-up. And they're one of those bands that has been really well-received by the press. A lot of really, really good reviews in their last two records. I think instrumentally they have something going on that's pretty cool and unique because um, I like punk rock a lot or certain punk rock a lot. Some of it's stupid, but there's certain bands that I really like. And I think there's cool elements of that mixed in with just like a classic, traditional, big arena rock feel, especially in the vocals. And I think it's a it's a unique combination. And I totally see why this band is blowing up. I think they're just going to get bigger and bigger. I think Brian Fallon, the singer, is a excellent songwriter. And, you know, every now and then, everyone has those bands that they discover that is kind of an it band for them that they're going to listen to for the rest of their lives. And this is one of those bands for me. This kind of speaks to you. It speaks to me, yeah, you know, and, and for each person, you know, it's different. But this is one of those things that from the first time I heard one of their CDs, it really grabbed onto me and it, it stuck. And I'm sure I'm going to be looking forward to the rest of their albums until they start writing top 40 Nickelback covers. For me, one of those bands that you kind of discover and live with is Tool. And I know one of the most exciting things for you about Tool is that how much they change from album to album. And with the Gaslight Anthem, is that what you see with this album? Do they keep, like, is their sound evolving or do you think there's a chance of them stagnating? It's a lot different because Tool is really progressive, especially if you look from like Undertow to Anima to Lateralis to, what's it, 10,000 10, days. days? Yeah. I almost said 10,000 fists, but that was a disturbed <laughs> album and that would be wrong. Well, that's just a terrible adult Yeah, it's a <laughs> But I, I think it's more subtle if you listen to their, basically, the Gasoline Anthem has three full-length records. If you listen to their first one, to the 59th sound, to their most recent one, American Slang, um, their first album being uh, named Sink or Swim. Definitely, they've gotten tighter. They've gotten more refined as a band. Um, this album is probably their most broad in terms of what they're going for sonically. Uh, they're doing more instrumentally. Lots of big, open, chordy parts. Lots of subtle, quiet parts. It's more about what's going on. I mean, there's a retrospective feel to their music that they've really relied on in their last albums. I don't think it's quite as heavy in this one, but it's. I think it's always going to be there. I don't think just because of the nature, they're a four-piece rock band. They're right, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse chorus music i think that's always what they're gonna do i just think they do that well so if you're a fan of that i suggest and really strong melodies strong lyrics i suggest checking this band out any one of their albums is worth it it's all good so would you say if you're a fan of weezer you'd be a fan of the gaslight Anthem? yeah yeah a lot of people weezer's a funny band because a lot of people who well hear, they're so hit or miss i mean their last couple albums produced by rick rubin have just been kind of garbage no yeah for me weezer i mean obviously the great weezer albums were the first one the blue album pinkerton are the two albums everyone will always go back to who've been listening to them for a long time i like the green album even though it's a pop rock record i think that it's a well-written pop rock record I like some of the stuff. Then after that, basically, Maladroid On is when it gets hit or miss for me. Oh, well, that's the thing. I think the Green Album has its moments, and it's still a very listenable album. But, you know, Weezer's just been off. And Gratitude, I, I have. And I got through it maybe once, and I haven't listened to it since. The Red Album has two or three songs that I enjoy, but really the rest of it is just garbage. And I'm kind of wondering what happened to Rivers Cuomo and the rest of the band. Like, I think they got caught up in being stars too much. And, you know, do you think that's something that could happen to the Gaslight Anthem? I mean, they do have that kind of, you know, Weezer, Weezer built their career on those kind of nostalgic four-piece rock songs. Something that kind of separates them from a lot of other bands is, uh, well, basically it's Rivers. After Pinkerton went into a hiatus for how well, many they years? they broke up, didn't they? I think it was about three or four years. It was, oh, I think it was longer than that. It was like five or six years because it was after they released Pinkerton they toured on that and then the but I mean everybody thought they were broke everybody yeah, thought the band was for, done yeah for all intentions he went to school he went to Harvard I think that period of time changed his outlook on, on songwriting and he's he really kind of became an egomaniac I think that just looking at the way the two bands function basically Weezer is Rivers Cuomo and this band is driven by Brian Fallon but you can see how each individual member is important to what they're doing and I think that is one difference but in terms of just like the idea that the band is a four piece who writes big rock songs yeah I see a, a slight similarity there it, it definitely exists you think their fans are alienated by this new album since they're kind of sort of going in a new direction? I think they're one of those bands that's still building their fan base, so maybe some of their like old school hardcore fans might be a little alienated by it. But overall, I think they're going to be okay. I think that they're just going to keep building. I don't think they're big enough yet to where they're going to have to deal with the whole alienating their fan base thing. At least not yet. I mean, they still got to release that one record that blows them up super huge, which is just kind of huge. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I would still say, like, being a layman and coming into it, and personally speaking for myself, I didn't necessarily enjoy the album, and I probably wouldn't keep it, and I wouldn't, you know, give it another listen, but I would say people should probably give it a listen in general if you're curious and looking for new music, because it has a lot of elements that I think some people could enjoy. Another segment that we're going to be doing throughout this podcast is Three's Company, where basically Dave and I have come up with three random news pieces from around the world. It could be from entertainment, it could be from politics, it could be from whatever, it could be from the BP oil spill. Basically, what we're going to do is just go back and forth, really quickly give our ideas on it, and shed some light on what we think is really going on out there. So yeah, just to kick the lid off, you already mentioned it, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Spillpocalypse 2010. Just to give anybody that doesn't know what's going on, and if you don't, I don't know why, April 20th, there was a massive rig explosion on the Deepwater Horizons oil drilling platform, which resulted in a rupture of the oil line 5,000 feet, I believe, beneath the ocean surface. And since April 20th, just about three months, oil has been spewing into the Gulf of Mexico, what the news organizations are calling a gusher, and it's basically been unchecked. And, you know, BP has come back. First they said, oh, it's about 5,000 barrels a day. Then they upped it to, like, 15,000 barrels a day. Then they upped it to, like, 20. 2,000 barrels a day. And it seemed like there was no ceiling to how many barrels of oil were spewing into the Gulf of Mexico unchecked. And BP has had no solution. The government has had no solution. Everything they've tried, junk shots, top kills, nothing has worked. And it seems like just now, just yesterday, they finally have a cap in place, which isn't even a permanent solution. They capped it because hurricane season is coming and to make sure that if they have to stop work on the well, that it won't spew oil all over the Gulf, that the hurricane won't whip up the oil and spew it everywhere. So this is a huge natural disaster. It's, it's the largest oil spill in the United States history. It, about a month ago, it eclipsed the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And my question is like, if they can drill at 5,000 feet, why don't they have safeguards in place? I know there was a well cap or something that was supposed to shut it off a valve that didn't work. You know, where's the technology to stop a spill of this magnitude? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit dumb to be drilling that deep and trying to drill a well if you can't cap an accident like this? I read something about, I don't know, two months ago when the problem first occurred. There's a news article that talked about how Dick Cheney, when he and uh, Bushy were in office, how he deregulated a lot of <laughs> he deregulated a lot of the uh, safety requirements for those uh, offshore oil platforms, mainly to cater to his big-time oil drilling buddies who all live in Wyoming. And obviously that's not the only reason why this happened. I mean, there's people on both sides going back and forth accusing each other of being the reason why it's happened and why it hasn't been fixed. But it's, it's just interesting to think that the American government in general probably has, you know, just as much to be blamed for as, as BP. Obviously, BP should have taken the initiative. They just took advantage of the fact that they weren't required to have certain backup safety precautions. But there is. There's an organization within the government. The name escapes me right now, but the head of that organization is way too chummy with these oil drilling executives and these oil drilling companies. And, you know, he's he's been removed and like I said, the name escapes me right now, but this kind of sounds like Katrina all over again with Brownie doing a great job at FEMA. And, you know, one minute W was praising him and then he was let go of two weeks later. And it, it, the scary part is that how high does this cronyism go? Like how many completely unqualified fuck ups do we have in these very important positions in government? Because, I mean, I'm not that upset that the government doesn't have a solution. That's not the government's job. The government's job is to regulate these things and make sure these companies have solutions on hand that when something like this happens, it can be fixed. And that's where the breakdown is at. You know, I mean, and people were like, we'll just nuke it or get down there and put straw on it. And, you know, I don't think people really understand, like, how complicated this is. I mean, the technology involved is unbelievably, unbelievably complicated. But once again, it just speaks to the industry you know their desire to drill and extract this well has so far outpaced you know any safety concerns it's fucking vulgar and bp i mean you just mentioned safety they just had a refinery explosion in texas a couple years ago that killed i think two dozen people it's funny because we rely on the government to kind of watchdog these groups and issue these permits because that's what the government does in this case it was a breakdown of government supervision no, yeah, it's, it's extremely frustrating when it just keeps happening because they're obviously doing a poor job of it, but they're the only ones in position to do it. So, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, but these are people, I mean, we elected the people that have placed these people into power, you know, the, the heads of these agencies. And I mean, what about all the folks in the Gulf of Mexico? This was their livelihood. This was an ecosystem, one of the richest marine ecosystems in the world. 
has been destroyed. It's been destroyed. And I read an article about the Gulf of Mexico. Or I'm sorry, excuse me, not the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Persian Gulf. After the uh, first Iraqi war, after Desert Storm, when the Iraqi troops were retreating across Kuwait, they basically opened the dump valves of takers and oil pipes into the uh, Persian Gulf. And it was a way worse, way worse spill than what we had now. And people thought the Persian Gulf was just dead. And 10 years later, it's come back. So, I mean, that gives me some hope about the resiliency of these marine ecosystems. But once again, why are we dealing with this in the first place? Why are we issuing permits to companies that can't fix an accident when it happens? And why are why are these oil companies fighting this drilling moratorium when they clearly can't take care of the problems? You know, and I understand, okay, it was BP's problem. It wasn't Exxon's problem. It wasn't Shell's problem. But why are they fighting the drilling moratorium that the president tried to put into place? Moving on to a lighter note, everyone's favorite martial arts superstar and my personal hero, Steven Seagal, has avoided a lawsuit. Yes, someone had filed a lawsuit against our hero claiming that he had trapped Caden Wynn into his Louisiana home and that the action star, while she was there, repeatedly fondled her. And thus, in turn, she filed a report, a sexual harassment lawsuit. He was found innocent. The $1 million lawsuit was dropped. I think he drop-kicked it out of his way. But it begs the question, A, obviously Steven's not guilty, but B, I wonder if there ever actually has been someone who's trapped someone in their house purely with the intention of fondling them. I think we need to uh, qualify what fondling means because it was just a grab or a pinch. I'm not, I'm not click. Could even just be a uh, innocent brush. Maybe, so. maybe they got them playing a game of horse and she beat him and he just gave her a little good game and she was deeply offended. I'm, you know, I've heard of their podcast touch on this and it's like, really, who's hired as Steven Seagal's personal assistant? When he shows up at the door, he kind of reminds me of like a, a chubby, high-kicking Marlon Brando, you know, kind of washed up. Used to be great when he did License to Kill. But, you know, you see Steven Seagal and you're like, yes, this is the man I want to be his personal assistant. Well, he is the bad guy in the upcoming movie Machete. So maybe oh, I'm so excited. That's re- going to be so revive great. His career. Oh, that's going to be so great. Yeah, like that, that scene oh. in the previous Cheech Marin was pretty classic. Yeah, it, once again, going back to Predators, if you do get a chance to go see it in the theater, they do have a trailer attached for Machete. I was disappointed they took out like the faux film scratches out of it, but that's such a small thing. It looks very fucking entertaining. It looks very good. Yeah, the the best part of the Predators movie is probably that trailer in particular. There's not very often where I see a trailer and I actually laugh out loud at something that happens in it. On purpose. But there's a, a scene where Cheech Marin, who plays a priest, um, Danny Trejo approaches him to help him kill and Cheech Marin responds with but I've sworn against violence but I'll think about it the next thing you know you see Cheech with a couple shotguns if you've seen the trailer that was tra- attached to the original Grindhouse film Death Proof and Planet Terror you, you've seen that scene but my understanding is that they had to go back and reshoot it but if you were a fan of the Machete trailer you're going to be a fan of this trailer in this film I mean this is the kind of thing you're either going to want to see it or you won't I think I saw Death Proof for three bucks and it was such a great experience I, excuse me I saw the whole Grind, both Grindhouse films because they were playing together for three bucks you gotta get out and see this film though if you're a fan you know this film was actually directed by Robert Rodriguez and Planet Terror was my favorite film Robert Rodriguez has done and I don't think Robert Rodriguez is that great a director I think a lot of his films have been bad to be honest but I think this is right up his alley it's a beat film you know it's stupid it's action-packed it's supposed to be funny and I think that's what he does very well no I agree maybe if he's a bad director he should stick to making purposely bad movies and then it'll be right in his wheelhouse well he's a B, he's a B director that made El Mariachi about 15 years ago and he did he shot it on the cheap it was so cheap he edited it himself and that's kind of what that film was known for was being a pretty decent action film that he made alone and he did some really innovative low-budget things and I've read his book what was it called um rebel without a crew and it's pretty inspirational but I don't think he's I think I think the things that he learned and that made him successful also limit him as a director. And I think he gets too caught up in coming up with cool little set pieces and doesn't know how to tell a story. Which, once again, with a B-movie, an intentional B-movie, I think this is right up his alley. Yeah, you don't really have to worry about story. It's important, but not in the way that for most movies are. It's kind of a stupid thing to say, but it's the truth. B-movies are more about just kind of laugh out loud. can laugh at the story, so it's okay for it to be stupid. Well, it's it's an in-joke, and you know what you're expecting when you come into it. Speaking of knowing what you're expecting when you come into it, though, the iPhone debacle. iPhone 4. Hearts and minds were set aflutter when Steve Jobs and his skeletal visage popped up on Apple's conference and announced the iPhone 4. People literally lost their shit like it was the second coming of Christ and the phone was released and they sold 3 million phones in the first month. It was the best selling iPhone ever, except 
if you hold the phone in a certain way, calls were dropped. And not just in a certain way, Apple's explanation the other day at their news conference was that when flesh touches the band around the phone, it can cause calls to be dropped. The iPhone's great. I just got an iPhone, it's a 3G. It's not a new 4G and I love it. I haven't had an iPhone for a long time, mostly because I didn't want to pay the bill, but you know, I finally caved in and got the phone. It's amazing. It's great. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I can live without it, but I'd prefer not to. One thing in case you don't understand is that the band around the iPhone 4, it's the antenna of the phone. And that's why calls are being dropped, that people are touching it, and that's what is connecting you. And so it makes sense that there would be interference there. I am a Apple homer. I have an Apple computer. I have an iPhone. I have an iPod. I have Apple, everything I can get my hands on. And I I think that they are heads and shoulders above any competition in terms of their technological development. Obviously, you would assume when releasing the phone that that would be something they would have taken care of, but it is funny to know that a company that is always better than anyone else made kind of a big mistake. And uh, like Dave, I am a recent convert to the iPhone. Mine is the 3GS, which I actually bought about two months before the 4 came out. And I'm kind of glad because I haven't had a single problem with it. Well, I know I read an article in the Times the other day that talked about the iPhone 4 and the development. And apparently Steve Jobs just fell in love with the design. He loved it because it was 25% slimmer. I mean, it was more functional, but they were having these problems when they were testing it. And the iPhone 4, typically when you have a new cell phone release, the cell phone companies themselves get a copy of this new phone, the prototype to test it out. But with the iPhone 4, the cell phone companies got about half the test time that they've been given in the past with other phones. And that's not just iPhones, that's every phone. So it looks like Apple knew that these problems were out there and that they were just trying to like rush it out to market. Now the solution to the problem is a case that's supposed to solve the problem of reception and you know that's a nice fix for now i know consumer reports blasted the iphone last week they said they would not recommend it and once steve jobs at the news conference yesterday which was friday the uh, 15th i believe once steve jobs made the announcement of the iphone case consumer reports once again released a statement that said you know we support this but we still can't recommend the iphone 4 as a buy so you know how's that going to affect apple i don't think it's really going to do much for apple as long as they fix it I went to an Apple store, uh, I don't know, sometime last week, probably three or four days ago, and while I was wandering around checking all, all sorts of stuff, they had the iPhone 4 on display, and I was, I was looking at it, it's slimmer, which is nice, but I honestly, that part of it I could care less about, because it's not like the other iPhones are really that big. Well, and don't you think phones are going to reach a point where, like, being that small is really not convenient? It, yeah, it's not necessary. The way the iPhones, de- older iPhones, I should say, are developed, I mean, they, they fit nicely. I'm a guy into my pocket. You can slide it right in there and bada bing, bada boom. You can pull it right out and it's smooth and it's comfortable. And really, aside from that, and I'm sure there's differences, I, I, I checked out for a couple minutes. There's not a huge difference between that and my 3GS. I, you know, the 4G is going to make the internet a little bit faster, but it's not like the 3GS internet's that slow to begin with. So I'm okay with that. I just, you know, I, it was funny when I got my phone because the 4 came out a few months later. And I was kind of disappointed at first, but really when it comes down to it, I don't think there's a huge difference. I think mine's okay. And well, I think one thing Apple does better than a lot of other companies, and it's because they got that brand recognition with the iPod and the iPad and previous iPhones, is that hype. Apple's a hype machine. And really when you get down to it, you know, the iPhone 4G versus the 3G or 3GS, you know, you're not going to see that great an increase in performance. Apple doesn't really have a 4G network that you can really take advantage of yet. No, 4G's not really as prominent or or as big a deal yet as it is 4g hasn't really been fully developed yeah give it a couple years maybe but you know apple this is a rare misstep for a company that has just been hitting home runs for the last year i mean pretty much since steve jobs came back from his kidney surgery or liver surgery you know their products like aaron said i'm an apple homer too you know i have an old powerbook g4 and i can't recommend apple products highly enough so rare misstep for apple but moving on yes in china it's been proven aliens exist as a lot of you heard late last week above a Chinese airport, a UFO was sighted causing the airport to shut down for a period of time. I think it was about an hour. They had to hold off on some flights because no one knew what was going on in the sky above. It was Basically, Mel Gibson. It was Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson got was, mad at the sky and decided to berate it. He was that so was a, angry. That his anger flashed across the sky. Created a sonic boom. The traveler, He was accusing the sky of having fake stars. <laughs> Said, said, Sky, your tits are too big, and there's you're sashaying around with that atmosphere. <laughs> the interesting part of the story isn't that there was a UFO sighting, because every nut in the world who sees a flash in the uh, sky assumes that there's aliens coming to beam them away. What's happening in China is that people are releasing fake photos of this that have found to be uh, 
inauthentic and really no one got any photos of it. Wait a sec, are you saying the UFO community has had fake photos in the, the past? They've been faking what you're it. Getting at? I've seen footage of the Denver alien that came from thousands of light years away to peek through this dude's window. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I've seen the footage he's talking about and it's interesting and it's actually kind of pretty what's going on. It's the photos that are fake. I th I'm not sure no. if the footage is fake. I'm sure, I and mean, it probably is, but what I read was just that the photos. I can't speak to the footage. Expression. I've seen the footage. It's interesting. There's contrails. You know, when you see UFO footage, typically it's just lights darting around. This looks like, you know, when a plane goes through the sky, it creates contrails of steam. And this is what it looks like too, except it's kind of beautiful because it's like a nice arc to it. It doesn't look like a UFO though. I've heard some reports that it's a uh, secret Chinese weapon. I heard it's also like some sort of U.S. military experiment, which always comes up whenever there's a UFO in the sky. To me, all these little things that happen can be explained with two words, Aurora Borealis. <laughs> I prefer swamp gas. Swamp gas, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I'm well aware that the Aurora Borealis happens uh, towards the Arctic, but you know, it's just another example of people losing their shit over something that really has no foundation of truth, not really know what's going on. And of course, I'm gonna sound like the scientific skeptic. It can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt scientifically. Who knows what happened? I just thought it was funny that people are getting in trouble for putting out fake pictures of it on the internet. Well, it's, it's so funny because people get so worked up about this shit. And it's like, I'm a skeptic. I love stuff like this. I love this kind of like quasi-science stuff, like the goat sucker in Mexico. But it's like, until you prove something, until you have some kind of hard evidence, everything is so questionable. You know, who knows what was in the sky? The skies are weird places. But moving on to weird places, Russia. <laughs> a massive heat wave has struck Russia over the last two months, resulting in a thousand Russians drowning this summer while seeking relief from the unbearable heat. There is one uh, caveat to the story, though, is that they're drowning because they're drunk. I know it's a, it's, a, it's a hard stereotype to swallow that the Russians are just a drunken people out there swimming around whatever large bodies of water exist in the motherland. But. Or maybe the idea that they don't know what to do with themselves when they experience what is called a heat wave in the motherland. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of par parts of Russia are actually close to the equator. So, I mean, the fact that it's like very warm over 100 degrees, not a shock. The shock is that they never learn these lessons in grade school that if you drink, you really shouldn't go swimming. The sad part, though, is that there are children that are being unattended to while their parents drink that are drowning. You know, but the fact that a thousand people have drowned in Russia due to drunkenness is just mind-boggling. Don't drink and swim, kids. I'd feel pretty confident I'm an excellent swimmer, but then again, you know, I wouldn't get wasted and Well, go have swimming. you ever swam drunk? Not wasted. I have drank and swam before, though. I'm not going to lie, but it's more like I had a beer or two while swimming, which I'm not going to go out in, in a pool that gets at the highest five feet deep when I'm six foot three. Uh, there's no real worries there. But yeah, not, not very smart to be uh, chugging vodka while out in the local uh, swimming hole. Yeah, definitely. I agreed. So way to go, Russia. Let's lay off the booze. Steven Spielberg is in the news. Senior Spielbergo. Senior Spielbergo, one of the greatest directors of all time, has come out and said that movies nowadays have too many special effects, which, depending on who you are or which director you are, may agree or disagree with. Basically, he feels that movies are relying purely on special effects at this point to make, you know, the product. And he says they begin with a solid special effect. The special effect carries out through the whole movie, then it ends with an even bigger special effect, which he's applied negates the story, which, you know, especially with the 3D technology taken off recently, may be true. I mean, you see that with a lot of movies. I mean, some are blockbuster, blockbusters have always been uh, short on story and big on special effects, especially over the last 20 years, but it is kind of scary to see storytelling and quality story writing. It seems like it has been going down, especially with all the re-releases. Well, once again, let's touch on Predators, you know. Think about the characterization in the original Predator. I mean, you even have a secondary character like Jesse Ventura's character, Blaine, that eats it after about 45 minutes in the film. You know this character. You like this character. He has got, he lives, he, he exists. He has his own life. Think about the characters in the new Predator film. Let's let's think about his uh, his doppelganger, the guy with the other Gatlin gun. The nameless Russian guy that, you know, he spetsnaz and that's it. Yeah, and he talks about his kids at one point to try to humanize them, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't work because, I mean, I can't remember this guy. He, we should just call him Ivan. I yeah. mean, he should have stayed in Russia and gone for a swim. He's not hes not even Ivan to me. He's just like the Russian guy because that's really all they developed him to be. It was, it was a pretty stereotypical character. He's like, hey, it's the Russian soldier with the giant fucking gun. Pretty much. I think Steven Spielberg is saying this because uh, a couple weeks ago was the 35th anniversary of the release of Jaws. And if you know anything about Jaws, you know it was plagued with troubles with Bruce, the shark, forcing Steven Spielberg to shoot around the shark. And he developed something called tension in your film because his special effect wasn't working. 
So I'm sure that's what this comet has to do with. And, you know, if you haven't seen Jaws, go do it now. It's such a great film. Robert Shaw is so good in it. Um, Richard Dreyfuss is totally watchable. Roy Scheider, rest in peace. It's a great film. But once again, the shark wouldn't work. It forced Steven Spielberg as a young director to shoot around the shark and create this tension, develop these characters, and make you care about these characters. So at the end, when you reach the climax of the film, you are worried. You're invested in these characters. You don't want bad things to happen to them. And that is absolutely something that's missing today with special effects because you can do so much with the computer, it takes you out of the experience. It takes you away from the human aspect of the film and people rely on it. And I mean, I am a pro special effects guy. The things you can do now with 3D technology is amazing. It allows you to make a movie like Superman. They made a couple years ago. It's the second time I referenced Superman, Jesus. But you cannot use it as a crutch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was touching on. It seems like what directors are doing is just relying on big explosions and cool-looking creatures to I mean, make their movie. Avatar. Not so much. Yeah, Avatar is like, well, that is the example of all examples. It's a movie whose story was basically just they patched together a couple different generic storylines and they came up with an idea to have an excuse to make a movie that was beautiful. I mean, visually it was stunning, but, I mean, come on, it's James Cameron. I mean, I've never seen a James Cameron movie where the storyline was as weak. I'm not saying that all his movies have been great story-wise, but that was by far the weakest storyline I've ever seen in a James Cameron movie. I mean, there was the cliche after cliche, poorly drawn stereotypes. Everything that you can imagine being wrong in a movie is in Avatar. And honestly, if you take away the visual effect of it, it's a bad movie. But oh, it also it, happens it, to be the highest grossing movie of all time. So it's, it's, it's a pale a, remake of Dances with Moves. Actually, it's not the highest grossing film of all time. I believe Gone with the Wind still holds that record when you adjust it for inflation. I mean, okay, it definitely so, made more mean, at the box office. You know, and the funny thing about technology is that there actually seems to be a bit of a 3D backlash going on right now because you have these films like Clash of the Titans that was post-produced yeah, in post 3D. And yeah, a lot of people 3D. just like, it looked like garbage. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, post-produced in 3D. I saw it in 2D. It was a giant turd either way. It was not a good film. It was so bad. We saw Toy Story 3, though, in 3D, and you know what? It was okay. It really just kind of gave me a sense of a greater sense of depth. That being said, I don't really, it didn't really enhance the, the movie going experience. I mean, give it some time to develop. I think it's like CG, it's like stop motion animation, it's like any kind of tool a director can use. If used properly, it can be, it can really help a film, but if you rely on it as a crutch, I think that becomes obvious. So now it's time for the uh, second half of our homework assignment, and it is the 2009 film House of the Devil. It was an independent horror film produced by Ty West, written, directed, and produced by Ty West, and it kind of snuck under the radar when it was released. I mean, it was really kind of an art house thing. Um, the film only grossed, how much was it? I believe it was $101,000. And Aaron, what do you think about it? I liked it. My girlfriend and I watched it a few days ago, being my homework assignment, and the cool thing about it is that it was shot purposely to resemble that of an 80s horror movie. Uh, and a lot of it also reminded me of like late 70s horror movies as well. I think the actual pace of the movie was actually like definitely late 70s, early 80s horror movie pace, because it's a lot of build-up to the climax at the very end of the movie, which it does really well. There's a lot of teenage stupidity, which is always good, especially when you're going to base a movie on what they used to do in the 80s and 70s. And it even looks like I mean, the characters, it takes place in the 80s. The girls have feathered hair, stonewashed jeans, Walkmans. The film quality looks like it was shot in the 80s. And I don't know if that was on purpose or just because it was what they could afford. But yeah, at one point, the girl busts out a giant Walkman that you could probably remember owning back in 1988. I think I had that Walkman. This was definitely a love letter to those classic 70s and early 80s slasher films. And once again, the way it was shot. Even the intro credits, how the frame would pause while the actors' names would come up, the title card. It was shot on 16mm film, which was a common film stock back in the day. It's a lower quality, cheaper film stock that was used for these old, low-budget horror films. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I think when we're speaking about Jaws a second, when you talk about tension, this film is all about tension. It, it is. It does have that stupid horror movie stupidity like why she would go to this creepy house and babysit this old woman after everything that happens in the film and all the explains, explanations she's given you never know yeah basically what happens in the movie is it's based around the main character Samantha and she and her friend are going to be moving into a house and she needs enough money to move into it she's out of money so she responds to a babysitting ad out in the middle of nowhere to go uh basically make some money to help pay for that first month's rent and when she gets out there she finds out that she's not going to be babysitting a kid it's going to be this older couple's uh, mom 
And so at first she's creeped out by it. She doesn't want to stay. But eventually they offer her like $400 to stay and do the babysitting job. And one thing that it, it kind of reminded me of was almost like it had the feel of a grindhouse film with the exception that it wasn't as out and out just gory slaughter fest. It was more of a tension builder. But it definitely had some characteristics that you'd see in a grindhouse film. The 60 millimeter uh, film helped with that. Kind of the acting style, poorly acted, uh, kind of weird looking actors too, which might be a funny thing to say, but you do find weird funny looking actors in a lot of grindhouse films well it's populated by a lot of character actors the uh lead bad guy if you could even call him that uh, was played by a gentleman named tom noonan who he's been on a bunch of episodes of x files he was the villain from robocop 2 he turned into the super robot or whatever he was frankenstein the monster squad he's a pretty well-known character actor he's one of those guys that if you see him you're like oh it's that guy um not as well as some other character actors but pretty well known and i think you know it reminded me a lot there's like the slasher aspect and there's also the haunted house aspect the kind of creepy haunted house babysitter horror it's slow i'm gonna be honest it's an hour and a half long and it's kind of slow but that slowness it's tension and it serves the film and you're you know you're being driven forward the whole time and there's a point near the end the last 15 minutes it's like all downhill for this lead character it's a very tense movie if you haven't seen it it's one of those films that's definitely snuck under the radar but if you have netflix check it out basically what you end up with is the character once she's babysitting it's she's by herself and it's hard to make a movie with a character without anyone else to interact with. But the way they build the tension is really, it's pretty well done. It's kind of cheesy, but it's cheesy in a good way, you know, like a lot of old school horror movies are. But it builds up to the climax of the movie in a really smart way. Just enough stuff happens to where you, you're aware as, as the movie rolls along about what's actually going to eventually happen. Especially if you do some research leading up to it, because you know the movie is based around the occult and Satan worship. I mean, you're worried about this character and you're worried what's going to happen to her. But then there's a subplot with the family that lived in the house beforehand. There's a subplot about a guy in a van. And then all of a sudden in the last 15 minutes it takes a nosedive into the surreal and all of a sudden she's the heroine she's the classic horror film heroine she's ripley she's any number of girls from the friday the 13th franchise you know it's it's just very surreal but once again i mean i can't recommend it highly enough especially you watch for free on netflix if I were to grade this movie for just a underground independent horror movie, I'd probably give it a, a solid B plus, A minus for what it was going for. Yeah, definitely. I'd definitely give it a B, B minus, you know. I would, per, honestly, if I could find it for five bucks, I'd pick it up on Blu-ray. I think it's worth owning, you know, because it is. It's creepy and it, it develops a story. And that's, you know, once again, we go back to Predator, you know, Predators. This is a film that had no special effects. So they had to just rely on tension. And that's something that, once again, these big kind of Hollywood films are missing out on. It's definitely a movie that, you know, you might buy it, you aren't going to watch it all the time, but it's one of those ones you want to have in your collection in case you have, like, that buddy of yours that comes over who, who's into horror movies and exactly. say, hey, check this out. This is an interesting watch. And what do you think? And that's what Dave, when he gave me the, the homework assignment, that's, you know, that's what the homework assignments are. And I was I was definitely impressed and entertained. It was it's free on Netflix. So if, if you have Netflix, check it out in there, House of the Devil. You can't do any better. I mean, it's one of those films that kind of flies under the radar. And it's also, I want to give a shout out to Harvey Picard. It's kind of like American Splendor. It's a film that flew under the radar because American Splendor was an HBO film. And, you know, but every time I get a chance, I refer people to American Splendor because it's so great. Paul Giamatti is so great, especially in the last week with Harvey Picard passing away. You know, it's a little more poignant now. So House of the Devil, once again, B, B minus, free on Netflix, free if you have Netflix to send away and get, check out this film. It's good. So this wraps up the first edition of Apocalypse Now. I'm Aaron. I'm Dave. And we'll see you guys in another week. Thanks for listening.